What do you reckon is the greatest lie ever told? Because there have been some absolute whoppers, haven't they? Uh, you, if you're of a certain age, you might remember, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Bill Clinton talking about his relationship with the intern, Monica Lewinsky, and it turned out that maybe his definition of sexual relations mightn't have been what everyone else thought. Or a few years later, Saddam has WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, and we have to invade to find them. When it turns out that Iraq were probably equipped with a slingshot and a pop gun. Seems like politicians might actually be responsible for a lot of lies, right? But surely, politicians cannot compete with advertisers. Can you believe that ads like this were ever legal? More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. That's good to hear, isn't it? The one on the right, though, is extraordinary. Taste isn't the only reason I smoke. People are always telling me that smoking causes low birth weight. Talk about a win-win, an easy labor, a slim baby, and the full flavor of Winston's. Now that ad is next level, isn't it? In fact, cigarette companies, did you know cigarette companies actually commissioned their own studies designed to say that smoking wasn't bad for you? And yet, you know, none of those are the biggest lie in history. There is one lie that's been believed by more people and done more damage than any other. Do you know what it is? It's the first lie in history. The lie that Satan told Eve in the garden. You will not certainly die if you eat that fruit. God won't judge you. That is actually the greatest lie in history. Eve believed it. We believe it, and in our passage today, Judah believes it. Have you got Jeremiah chapter 25 open? Have a look in Jeremiah 25 verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and all those living in Jerusalem, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I've spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all of his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention. So here it is. It's the year 605 BC. We know that because of verse 1. It's the first year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And it's also the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And Jeremiah says that he's been writing and speaking to Jerusalem now for 23 years. Verse 3, for 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me. And I've spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. Even though, verse 4, God sent his servants, the prophets, to you again and again. You haven't listened or paid attention. Israel have refused to listen to God's voice now for 23 years. And look, just by, just by way of coincidence, how long do you think I've been the pastor of Hunter Bible Church? Turns out it's 23 years. Oh, Jeremiah, I feel your pain. 
Actually, one of the things that I'm so grateful for is that our church has been nothing like Judah. I thank God that over the years, our church has always had this culture of really wanting to hear what the Bible says, what God says to us, because Judah refused to listen to what Jeremiah or the prophet said, even though God warned them that he would judge. So look in verse five. They said, turn now each of you from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land your God gave you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you didn't listen to me, declares the Lord. And you've aroused my anger with what your hands have made and you brought harm to yourselves. You see, Jeremiah and the prophets have warned, God will judge if you keep sinning. But Judah has bought the biggest lie in history. God won't judge us. I mean, after all, we're his people. We're the children of Abraham. God will not judge us. And so look what God says in verse 8. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. You see, God says, I have warned you enough. The time has come now for me to judge you. I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he is going to completely destroy you. Now, you need to know, Nebuchadnezzar and his reign and his uh, empire Babylon were the new superpower on the block at this point. I mean, you can see where they are on the map. They're on the right-hand side of the map, on the other side of the desert and on the other side of the Euphrates River. And just four years before this, 609 BC, Babylon had become the greatest power in the region. They'd fought against the combined armies of Egypt and Assyria, two other great superpowers. They'd fought a battle at a place called Carchemish and Babylon had defeated both of them. And so Babylon now stood alone and supreme in that part of the world. And the thing is, they were also completely evil. The Babylonians were brutal conquerors and they were idol worshippers and they were ruthless. Babylon spelt bad news for the whole of the ancient world. And yet look in verse 9, God says, I will summon the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. God is sending Babylon to judge Judah. And it's worth stopping here to think about a couple of things. One is a really simple question you might be asking, and that is, how come God calls Babylon and the, the peoples of the north when actually they're from the east. Did you notice that? Well, it's because even though Babylon is to the east, they couldn't just march over the desert. It's way too hot for that. And so invaders would always come by either the north or the south. But another question you might be asking is, 
how on earth can God use Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to do his bidding? Because, I mean, they're evil, aren't they? One person I read this week said, using Nebuchadnezzar is kind of like using Hitler or Mussolini or Pol Pot. This man is a brutal, genocidal war criminal. How can such a pure God use such an evil man? And, you know, this actually helps us to see God's incredible span of control. Nebuchadnezzar was an evil man. He didn't care for Yahweh at all. He didn't care about God or worship God. And yet God was still his ruler. In fact, look in verse 9. Jeremiah calls Nebuchadnezzar God's servant. The same word he used for the prophets. Because even though Nebuchadnezzar doesn't worship God, he's still his servant. He still does God's will in the world. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, Paul tells Christians to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. You see, God is the one who put Nebuchadnezzar there for his purpose and every other authority. And in verse 4, Paul calls authorities God's servants. Same word again, whether they're evil or not, because they all serve God's good purposes. And so even though Nebuchadnezzar is thoroughly evil, and even though he's not invading Judah because he cares about God and God's justice, God is so powerful, he can use Nebuchadnezzar's evil for his own good purposes. God can use Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance and ambition and pride and ego for his own good purposes. And of course, when you read Daniel chapter 4, you see, God teach Nebuchadnezzar that he's not God himself. And in fact, there is a real God when God completely humbles Nebuchadnezzar. But this is why we don't need to worry when we change, see changes in government in Australia. God can rule through the Labor Party every bit as much as through the Liberal Party. God can rule through the Greens if he wanted to. God can rule through a pagan prime minister just as easily as through a Christian prime minister. Now, look, sure, life might be a little bit easier for us under a Christian prime minister. We might be more comfortable, but God will still be in control regardless of who's in government. But, you know, a third little thing we get from this section is just how incredibly patient God is, right? I mean, how long has Jeremiah been preaching to Judah at this point? 23 years. 23 years God's put up with Judah's hard heart. And in fact, you know something else? God waits another 20 years before he finally sends Babylon. It's not until 586 BC that this prophecy actually comes true. So God preaches and calls Judah to repent for 40 long years 40 years of patiently waiting for Judah to repent. God's so incredibly patient, isn't he? God's anger is nothing like our anger. Human anger tends to be fast, vengeful, and out of control. So I get angry quickly, and I want to pay people back, and I punish way too severely. That's just being a human being, isn't it? But God's anger is slow. It takes 40 years God's anger is righteous, not vengeful. He doesn't pay people back. He actually brings righteousness. And God's anger always fits the crime. God's so different to us in his anger, isn't he? In fact, look in verse 12. God says that at the end of 70 years of being in Babylon, he's going to bring Judah back to their land. 
he is going to forgive them. And in fact, when God does forgive Judah, he'll punish Babylon for their sin against Judah. So look in verse 12. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I'll punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. And I'll make it desolate forever. I'll bring on that land all the things I've spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. You see, God is actually going to punish Babylon for invading Judah. Because see there in verse 12, even though Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant being used by God, he's still guilty. Just because Nebuchadnezzar is achieving God's goodwill doesn't mean that he has no evil will of his own. This is something Christians often wrestle with. We hear the idea that God's in complete control of everything, including us, and we assume that means the Bible teaches that we have no will of our own. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Of course we have our own will. Nebuchadnezzar chooses to invade Israel for his own evil purposes, just as we sin for our own evil purposes. But God is so powerful that he can use our evil to achieve his good ends. God brings good out of our evil. And now God promises to punish Babylon for their evil. And you know, this promise to punish Babylon is just an incredible example of the power of God's word. Because you see, when God says all of this in 605 BC, no one, would ever believe that Babylon would be gone in just 70 years. No one would ever have predicted that in just 70 years, Nebuchadnezzar's whole empire would come crashing down. It was just too dominant. It was just too powerful. They just crushed Assyria and Egypt in one battle. And yet here is God's prophet predicting the downfall of a superpower. He's predicting the ridiculous. And yet it came true. In 539 BC, just 66 years later, the Persians, the new superpower on the block, crushed the Babylonians and brought their empire to an end. That great Babylonian empire actually only lasted one generation, just 70 years. You see, God's word is incredibly powerful. God doesn't just predict the future. He shapes the future. What God says will happen will happen, however unlikely that may seem. And yet it's not just Babylon who's going to be judged. Look what Jeremiah goes on to say in verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they'll stagger and go mad because of the sword I'll send among them. You see, God isn't going to just judge Babylon for its evil. No, God sends Jeremiah to all the nations with his cup of wrath. From verse 17 following, he's going to the Egyptians and the Philistines and to Edom and to Moab, to the kings of Tyre and Sidon, to the kings of Arabia. God isn't just judging his own people, Judah, and he's not just judging their oppressors, Babylon. No, God has a cup of wrath for the entire world. Because you see, God is the God 
of the entire world. God is the judge of everybody, whether they worship him or not. It doesn't matter whether I happen to believe in God or worship God. He's still my judge. See, that's what's wrong with the whole you do you culture of our world, isn't it? See, the way our world teaches it is you are actually the God of your own life. You do you because it's your life. So play by your rules. You're your own God. That's what our culture teaches, isn't it? Because that means that I get to decide who I am. I get to decide what matters to me and I get to decide my identity. I get to decide my gender. You decide your future for yourself. And so the point of life becomes, look, you just make yourself happy. You be with who you want. You do what you want. You make yourself happy and no one else can judge you. But that is the greatest lie ever told. It's the same old lie, just dressed up in new clothes. The lie that God won't judge. And Jeremiah shows this lie for what it is. Because Yahweh isn't just the God of Judah and he's not just the God of Christians. Now he's the God of all the nations. And in verse 27, we just get a simply awful, awful description of God's wrath. Have a look in verse 27. Then tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, drink, get drunk and vomit and fall to rise no more because of the sword I will send among you. But if they refuse to drink the cup from your hand and drink, take the cup from your hand and drink, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. Isn't that an awful picture of God's judgment? The nations will get drunk on the wine of God's anger and they'll vomit and they'll stagger and they won't be able to get up. And if they refuse to drink, God will say to them, you must drink it. God will force them to get drunk on his anger. And look, just as an aside, don't you think it's interesting here that God uses drunkenness as a sign of his anger? Our, our culture would never see being drunk as a judgment, would it? I mean, our world thinks that drunkenness is great fun. It's a big night out. It's something to celebrate. And when our mates stagger and fall over and they can't get up again, well, we just film them and we put it up on Instagram because it's a laugh when people get drunk. But there's actually a reason why God uses drunkenness as an image of judgment. And that's because drunkenness isn't a laugh. No, it's a humiliation. It shames us. And we do shameful things when we get drunk. We lose control of ourselves and we hurt people and we hurt ourselves and we destroy our lives and other people's lives when we get drunk. That's why God uses drunkenness as an image of his judgment. If you're a Christian, don't buy into this nonsense that the world believes about the fun of drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sign of God's wrath. But in this passage, God's judgment isn't just a cup. In verse 30, it's his roar. The Lord will roar from on high. He'll thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. He'll shout like those who tread the grapes, shout against all who live on the earth. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 32, God's judgment is a natural disaster. Look, disaster is spreading from nation to nation. A mighty storm is rising from the ends of the earth. In verse 34, God's a predator. 
who kills the sheep and attacks the shepherd. So verse 38, like a lion, he will leave his lair and their land will become desolate because of the sword of the oppressor and because of the Lord's fierce anger. God's judgment in this passage is awful, isn't it? It's incredibly confronting. It might come after long, long years of patience. But when God's judgment does finally come, it's terrifying to behold. You can see why we tell the lie to ourselves, can't you? Because who can imagine ever facing God's judgment? The lie is just preferable, isn't it? And in fact, in verse 29, God tells the nation something really important. He tells them how they can know that he will judge them. This is how the nations can be certain that God is going to judge them. It's because he has judged his own people. So look in verse 29, God says, See, I am beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name. And will you indeed go unpunished? You will not go unpunished. For I'm calling down a sword on all who live on the earth, declares the Lord. See God's logic there? How can the nations know that God is going to judge them? Well, because he's beginning with his own people. God's beginning with his city, Jerusalem, the city that bears his own name. And so if God begins his judgment there, will the nations go unpunished? Of course not. Don't believe the lie. Babylon, don't believe the lie. Persia and Egypt and Tyre and Sidon, don't believe the lie that God won't judge. If God is judging his own people, will you go unpunished? No, God's judgment is coming to the whole world. Jeremiah 25 is an incredibly sobering passage, isn't it? It runs so against the culture of our day. We only want good news We only want nice messages. We would much rather sweet lies than bitter truth. But Jeremiah chapter 25 is bitter, bitter truth. Don't believe Satan's lie. God will judge. And yet for Christians... There is a sweet truth. It's the sweetest truth of the gospel. Because we know that we will never have to drink the cup that's talked about here, don't we? We'll never have to drink this cup because Jesus has drunk it in our place. Just leave Jeremiah there. Come with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Mark 14, 32. This is the night before Jesus died. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
And doesn't that passage mean so much more after you've read Jeremiah 25? Because we now know the cup that Jesus is talking about. He's facing the cup of God's wrath. That's what Jesus was going to drink the very next day on the cross. And so we know why Jesus was so distressed and troubled because we know how awful that cup is, right? We know that on the cross, God roared against Jesus. He thundered against Jesus and the mighty storm of God's anger broke against Jesus. He put it all on Jesus' shoulders and then Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to his very dregs and he couldn't get up again. On the cross, Jesus bore everything that God promised in Jeremiah 25. And when you realize that, when you read Jesus into Jeremiah 25, don't you love Jesus all the more? Don't you love Jesus for saying, yet not what I will, but what you will? Because the fact is, unless he'd said that, that cup would have been ours to drink. We would have been lost for eternity. But Jesus has drunk that cup. And, you know, that means that Christians read Jeremiah 25 with completely different emotions to the ones Judah had. I mean, Jeremiah's readers must have been terrified when they read it, right? To know that this judgment is coming to you is just frankly terrifying. But we're not terrified when we read Jeremiah 25. No, we're grateful. And we're joyous. We're grateful because we know how terrible God's judgment is. And we also know we'll never have to face it. Jeremiah 25 is a cup I will never have to drink. Praise God. Praise Jesus. See, Christians are the only group of people in the world who can say, God will not judge us. For us, that's not a lie. For us, it's the greatest truth ever told because God has already judged Jesus in our place. How beautiful is the gospel, right? And yet, even in the midst of this beauty, we do know that there is still a judgment to come for the world, isn't there? God will finally judge the world when Jesus returns. And if we haven't trusted Jesus to drink our cup, then that cup remains ours to drink on the last day. And so Jeremiah 25 speaks to all of us at that point. It speaks to everyone who hasn't yet trusted Jesus. It gives us this horrible picture of God's judgment. And again, our world doesn't want to believe it. Our world wants to believe the lie. A loving God will never judge me. A God of love would never get angry with me. I could never believe in a God who, doesn't, who, who, um, who judges people. I just believe in a God who accepts me as I am. It's not the truth. We know God will judge. And we know that God will judge because Jesus died. And we suffer now. That's what Peter says in his first letter. You know, I think that Peter must have been reading Jeremiah 25 when he wrote the book of 1 Peter. Just come with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and look how Peter explains the judgment that's to come at the end of the world. 
He's writing to Christians. And in verse 12, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Now, do you see the logic Peter's using in that passage? He's saying, if you're a Christian, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if you suffer because Jesus suffered and you're joining his sufferings. You're his people. And so you're going to share in Jesus' glory later on. So, of course, you share in his sufferings now. Just make sure you suffer for being ungodly rather than being ungodly, uh, rather than for being godly rather than ungodly. Don't suffer for being a murderer or a thief. And then look what he says next in verse 16. He says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Do you see how Peter explains the final judgment to come? Exactly the same logic as Jeremiah. Jeremiah said to the nations, you know that judgment is coming on you because if God starts by judging his own people, will you escape? And Peter says the same thing about the final judgment. In verse 17, he says, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Because in verse 13, Jesus has suffered on the cross. And we share in his sufferings. Verse 16, we suffer as Christians. God has already begun judgment with Jesus and us. Which means verse 17, well, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You see, the greatest lie in the world is that God won't judge But the fact is, he's already started judging the world. It started when Jesus died on the cross and it's continuing in our sufferings. And if you want proof that God is going to judge the world, you only need to look at Jesus and Christians. You have all the proof you need there. And so what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? The outcome will be judgment. The outcome will be hell. Can you see why, if you're not a Christian, can you see why we plead with you to consider Jesus and find out about Jesus? Can you see why your friend is so urgently inviting you to come along to something like life? It's because they don't want you to drink the cup of God's wrath. They want you to trust Jesus who drank it for you. If you're not a Christian, will you investigate Jesus? Will you come along to life? Will you come along to church? It's the most urgent, crucial, critical thing that you can ever do. Don't believe the lie that God won't judge. Instead, embrace the truth that Jesus has drunk your cup. Trust that Jesus died in your place. That is, turn Jeremiah 25 from the most bitter truth in the world 
to the sweetest promise of Jesus dying for us. Let's pray. Our great God, we are so tempted to believe Satan's lie that you will not judge. He's told that lie for generation after generation. And when we see the severity of your judgment, we are so very tempted to believe it. But we know that you are a patient God who is also just and that eventually your own character demands that sin be punished. We thank you that Jesus was punished in our place. We thank you that he drank your cup of wrath to the very dregs on the cross. We pray that we might trust him. We pray that we might embrace him and turn to him and rely on him to take our judgment for us. Amen.